0: Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, We are in a series of sermons this summer on the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, If you don't know what those are, the Apostle Paul talks about them in his letter to the Galatian Church. He says that these are the kinds of things that Jesus grows in the life of those who follow him. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness gentleness, and self-control. That is what we are called to look like as those who follow Jesus. And this is the fruit that Jesus gives to us, not just for our good, but for the good of the world. I I need people who look like that list all around me, and you do too. And this broken and hurting and anxious world, it also needs people who look and live like that. So this morning, we're going to talk about peace I'm going to read from Philippians four, through uh, two through seven. Oh, actually, I'll read two through nine. We're only going to be able to talk um, about through verse seven, but I'll read all of that that's there. You can follow along in the order of worship or in a Bible, or you can just listen as I read from Philippians four. I entreat Euodia and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. If there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. This is God's word, and it's given for our good. Let me pray for us. Father, we ask um, that these things that we have sung together already this morning would be true in this moment that you would turn none of us away who was here this morning unhealed. That you'd be happy to use this word that is written, that we have just read and heard together, to show us more clearly the grace of Jesus and the peace that he has made for us and for this whole world, and that you would change us by it. Father, as we talk and think about this word, give us the faith to believe that all that is mysterious now will be bright at last. That we are part of a bigger story than what we can see right now. Help us to believe that that is true and to live and breathe out of it. And we pray this in the name of Christ. Amen. So <clears throat> we, uh, we moved into our house about nine years ago. And from the first uh, day that we lived in that house... Uh, I've known that certain things, uh, several things, needed attention. Uh, I'm not talking about walls that could be painted a different color or a light fixture that might be nice to install. I'm talking about the kind of things that get worse and worse over time that could potentially cause a lot of damage uh, if they're not attended to. It seems like there is always a running list of those kind of things around our house. And in particular, at some point in the history of our house, the back porch... Uh, was converted into a room, not unusual at all in Chicago. And uh, as part of that project, uh, a little shed was roughed out underneath that room. And for some reason, whoever built that addition um, installed four non-operable windows in that shed. It's nice to have the light um, coming into the shed, but they didn't do an awesome job of installing these windows. And so from the day we moved in, I've known that the sills on those windows would need to be replaced. They were showing signs of rot nine years ago. But you know how things like this go. Um, there are other things that are more urgent around the house. There are other things that are more satisfying, more fun to do. Um, and so my tactic with these windowsills um, has been to ignore them <laughs> and to pretend that they're not bad as bad as they really are. That, that has genuinely been my tactic and my approach. You can ask Alison, she will tell you that it's true. I have walked by them day after day like they're not even there. And then at the beginning of this summer, um, the inevitable finally happened. The sills on two of those four windows just finally fell out. Now miraculously, the panes of glass in those windows stayed in place. So you know what I've done since those sills fell out? I have continued to ignore the windows. because the fact that the glass is in there bought me some time. I know that that is a horrible strategy, and now, of course, I have two choices. First, I could sell the house, (laughs) right? That would definitely get rid of the problem. Seems like it could be overkill. Or I could step up and do the work of fixing those windows. And I tell you that story because I think that this is how uh, a lot of people like us go about trying to get our hands around peace. The, there are dawning reminders of chaos and violence and unrest and anxiety all around us. Right, The terror and the loss of life in Nice, the failed coup attempt, the loss of life in Turkey, these are just the latest of what feels like an awful lot like a never-ending and steadily increasing barrage of trouble in our world. Between Friday afternoon and this morning, almost 40 people were shot in our city, four of them fatally. This morning, two police shot in Baton Rouge. And no doubt every one of us here this morning has things in our personal life that bring us trouble and anxiety, conflict with our spouses, conflict maybe with our significant others, worry about our friends or our kids, disappointment with someone who is near to us. And a lot of times when we want peace in those situations, it is as if the only thing that we will accept is for that trouble to be removed. Right? That's what we want God or someone else to do. If you remove this trouble, then I will have peace. It's like me wanting to sell my house to fix the windows. And then if that doesn't happen, if the trouble doesn't get removed, we try to ignore it. We try to pretend that it isn't really as bad as it is. We ignore that person or that thing or that situation. We walk around it like it isn't there. We try to insulate ourselves from it and just generally try to forget that it's there. But if you've tried any of those things, I don't need to tell you they do not bring peace. They exacerbate and incubate anxiety because we don't get peace by ignoring and we don't get peace by avoiding. And that's because pursuing peace requires work and usually a lot of work. Roll up your sleeves, sweaty, dirty kind of work that costs us emotionally and sometimes costs us otherwise. And this should not surprise us, Church, because this is how Jesus won peace for us and for the whole world. It cost him everything. And this is how we do our part, to grow the fruit of peace in our own lives and in the life of the world. We have to go about the hard work of making peace, of seeking it, of pursuing it. This is exactly what Paul is calling his friends to in the church in Philippi in that passage that we just read together. I have always loved the beautiful way that this starts (laughs) Paul says, uh, he writes, I entreat Euodia and Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now, we have to remember that before this letter became part of our scripture, um, it was just another letter that Paul wrote to a church that he loved. He probably wrote dozens of them, maybe even hundreds of them. And every church that got a letter from Paul did the same thing with it. When they got together for worship, one of the people in that church who was literate would take that letter and would read it out loud to everyone who was there in that place. And so you have to imagine the the ripple of shock that would have gone through that room when these two women, who everyone knows, who are sitting right there in that room while that letter is being read, um, get called out by the Apostle Paul. And I love to imagine how these women felt when they heard their names being read out and had their conflict brought out into the open in front of everyone. I'm sure they thought, wow, I hope no one else ever gets a hold of this letter and reads it. It would be super embarrassing. <laughs> and that's why I can't stand how beautiful this is. Not only did someone get hold of this letter, um, it has become part of our scriptures. And for over 2,000 years, their names have been read in public and in private by innumerable people. Now, we have no idea what their quarrel was about. We have no idea who started the fight. We have no idea why they couldn't work it out. And frankly, we don't have any idea if they ever did. But here's what we do know, the peace of that community had been breached. Peace in that community had been vandalized. And it mattered desperately to Paul that it would be restored. He doesn't just address these two women. In fact, he addresses this other unnamed person, his true companion, and he says, please help these women work through whatever it is that is happening there. And that's why these lines, these really strange kind of out of nowhere lines in this letter are so beautiful. Because they are about making peace. And they are a great pointer to something that people like us need to understand about peace. We have got to get this. And that is that peace is a community thing. Peace is a communal thing. People like us often have a kind of short-sighted view of peace that limits it to our own personal, individual sense of peace. Our own individual sense of well-being. Often when we think of peace, what we're thinking of is primarily about getting it for ourselves. And church, that is a measly, measly view of peace. In Scripture, peace is never limited like that. In Scripture, peace always blossoms and it always grows and it always flourishes in community. Peace in Scripture only exists in community. That is the only way that it exists. That's why it's so important for Paul to, in this letter, send these three people off on a peacemaking mission. Listen to how the New Testament, the rest of the New Testament, talks to people like us About peace. Listen to how it is spoken of. Let us pursue what makes for peace. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. Strive for peace with everyone, seek peace and pursue it. A harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And of course, we heard in the gospel lesson this morning that Mark read Jesus' beautiful teaching. Blessed are the peacemakers. They will be called the children of God. Do you hear the common thread? We have to hear the common thread that is in all of these statements. That common thread is that peace is something that we pursue. It is something that we strive for. Peace is something that we seek. Peace is something that we make. It is a harvest that we have to sow. We make peace for the church and we make peace in our families and we make peace with our friends and with our neighbors and we make peace in the whole world. It is not first and foremost an intangible interior feeling that we try to work up in ourselves or for ourselves. So this is how... The Bible defines peace. The Bible says peace is what exists when every possible relationship, when every one of them, is marked by flourishing and goodness. Right? Peace is what exists when every one of our relationships with with God and with our neighbors and with ourselves and with the created world around us, when every one of those relationships is, as Paul says in his letter to the Colossian Church, when it is bearing fruit and growing. And you know, just a minute of reflection on that kind of picture where relationships are doing what they should be doing. Just a minute's reflection on that will help us remember that this is the world that God created. That is how he intended this world to work. Peace is Eden before the fall. Right? Our first parents walked with God. They did not know fear in front of him. They did not know shame in front of him. Those feelings were foreign to them. They would not have had words to begin to describe those feelings. They were free, free to enjoy all of God's goodness, free to enjoy all of God's beauty. And their relationship with each other, imagine this, it was not marked with suspicion. It was not marked with competition. It was not marked with nagging questions. They didn't fear each other. They didn't have to protect themselves from being hurt by one another. They were free, free to love, free to serve, free to care for and enjoy and delight and learn about the other. And their relationship with the world around them was just as free. Their work was filled with joy. Their work gave them purpose because it was their purpose. It wasn't some fragmented part of their life that they saw as a necessary evil. The world, as God himself said, was very good. And when biblical writers talk about peace, when they long for peace, when they beg God's people to work for it, when they beg us to seek it, when they beg us to pursue it, that is what they have in mind. And church, at the very center, at the very center of the Christian faith, is the unshakable belief that through the incarnation and life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus, God has started the project of restoring the world to the peace in which and for which he created it. That is at the center of our faith, that in the work of Jesus, God is moving this world back to the peace that he created it for in the first place church that is so much better and more beautiful and more useful than a weirdly truncated, individualized, interior parody of peace. And I think that's why Paul immediately moves the church outside of themselves. He tells the church, you should always be rejoicing. And then he repeats himself, I say it again, you should always be rejoicing. You should let your reasonableness be known to everyone. It's no surprise at all to me that he moves from an appeal to make peace in the church to an appeal about how the church ought to live out their life outside in the watching world. Because the peace that Jesus has won for the church has got to move outward. Paul wants his friends to be known as people of peace for the world. And I know... (laughs) I know that it's easy to get paralyzed about this. It's easy to begin to wonder, where do we begin? What do we do? How do we live and breathe peace in a city that has been carved up by race? Right? How do we live and breathe peace in a city whose leaders are often content to play us off one another because it serves their power? How do we live and breathe peace. Well, there are lots of places to start, but let me just suggest one, maybe the simplest one, and that is start with your neighbor. Literally, your neighbor. (laughs) The person who lives across the hall from you or next door to you or across the alley or across the street. Start with your neighbor. Start a conversation with them. Ask them, how does it feel to be living in the city in these days? Share some of your life with them and talk with them together about things that might make for peace. Things that might make for peace on your block or in your neighborhood. Let that be the beginning of making your reasonableness known. Doesn't matter if you've lived there for a long time and you've only waved hi to them and you don't know their name, you could learn it this afternoon, they could learn yours, and that would be the beginning. Or have an open handed conversation. Have an open handed conversation with an African American or a Hispanic friend about living in our city and what it feels like for them. Or have an open handed conversation with a police officer about what their job is really like and about the cross pressures that they feel every day. Move into those conversations with an eye towards making peace, with an eye towards learning, as scripture says, with an eye towards learning the things that actually make for peace. Move into those conversations as followers of Jesus who are seeking to do what he has asked us to do, to sow peace, to strive for peace, to seek peace. Jesus Church, he was, Chris, Jesus was crystal clear about this and incredibly encouraging. Blessed are the peacemakers. They are called the children of God. Now, Paul isn't naive. He knows this isn't easy. Most of the time making peace is, is difficult and it is costly. He knows that he's talking to fallen people who always have something that is other than the gospel being pulled into the center of their motivations and their actions. He knows that we live in a world that is very quick to say it is their problem. And if they want it dealt with, they can come to me. And so this is what he says to his friends. It's incredibly powerful. He says, the Lord is at hand. God is imminent. He is with you and with us. And with those words, I think he's reminding us who we are and where we are headed. First, we are Christians, and that means that we have been set at peace with God. Paul says this most clearly to the church in Rome. He says, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through Jesus. To follow Jesus in repentance and faith is to be set at peace with God, not because we have done all kinds of great things to placate him and make him happy, but because the hard work of making peace with him has been done for us by our elder brother Jesus. And to cling to him in faith is to be at peace with God. I know the church in Philippi knows that, just like we kind of know it with our heads, but it needs to be heard again so that we'll sink into our hearts And out into our hands and our feet and our voices. But he's also reminding us where we are headed when he says the Lord is at hand. He says we are headed into this world that is being made new by Jesus. We are heading back into the Eden that this world was created to be. We are headed back into the way things were meant to be. And that's why, I think that's the only reason why he can tell his friends, do not be anxious about anything. You hear that and you think, how is that possible? Don't be anxious about anything. He's not telling them to just flip a switch, the peace switch or something, and then have all of their very real problems get turned off. That's not what he's talking about. He is reminding them that they live inside a bigger, more beautiful story than they can see all of right now. The things that threaten their peace that are both external and internal. They're not all that there is to the story. There is a future, and it is good, and it is right, and it is just, and it is filled with peace. And he's reminding them, like he did earlier in the letter, I'm convinced, he said, that the one who started this good work will carry it to its completion. So in the meantime, Paul says, this is what you do. You thankfully pray, and you let your requests be made known to God. I don't think we can hear that enough. Paul says, in the middle of the great and real cost of making peace as fallen people in a fallen world, here is what you do. You do not dissolve into hopelessness and anxiety. You thankfully pray and you let God know exactly what you need. We thank God that he's in charge of this bigger, fuller picture that we can't see all of right now, the one that is leading back to real peace. And we let him know what we need in the present. And when we hold these two things together in faith, the payoff, the payoff is huge. Not because I say it is, but because God says it is. It's right there in black and white. Paul says, when you do this, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying that thankfully letting God know what you need triggers this incomprehensible, impenetrable, unbreakable response from God. And that is that the peace in which he lives and dwells, the peace which is his essence, it will guard you. That's real peace, church, not a parody. It isn't the fake peace that we often make by dressing up problems to make them look prettier. It isn't the false peace that buries its head in the sand to try to ignore or forget. It is not the plastic peace of trying to act like it's their problem and they can come to me if they want to. This is the costly and hard-won peace that Jesus bought by the blood of his cross. He gives the fruit of peace to us for our good so that we can turn around and give out that fruit for the good of the world to his glory, and to his praise forever. Let me pray for us. Father, we believe. Help our unbelief. Father, help us to see that we are in this story that you have been telling for a long time that you will one day finish. And help us to believe that it is true that you have our good and flourishing and our peace in mind. Help us to be a people who pray and tell you what we need and who seek peace and pursue it and sow it everywhere we are. Father, do this for us and do this for this world around us, and we pray it in Christ's name. Amen.